0: Well, a great deal can be said about the making of this film, Uh, after some consideration, I've decided not to bother going into it. There's entire documentaries and behind-the-scenes stuff, but ultimately most of it is just specifics of how-tos and where they were going with it. We know that this film was actually in rough draft for an extremely long time, like going back to Phase 2 long time. And we do know that they changed their mind many times as they went. And we know that there was part of an overall structure, just all sorts of stuff like that. You know what I find most interesting in the the behind-the-scenes aspect of this film, though? This is, at least as of today, and probably will remain so for some time, a completely unique moment in cinematic history. There's never been something like Infinity War before, and there may never be something like this again. Ten years, 30-something movies, all building up to a singular point. This has never been done before. And, I mean, just, you look at the cast, you look at the presentation, you look at the build-up, you look at the payoff. This, even just as a general film geek, this film makes me go, I, you know, I, I commented on that when uh, I was there. I actually tweeted about it, because this isn't even all that long ago now. We're getting to a lot more modern stuff now, aren't we? I think this was just two years ago now, at this point. Yeah, and... uh You know, going through this, I remember tweeting out and being like, yeah, this is such a, a, it's so weird feeling, a part of this tiny little, tiny little part of this bit of history here. And I was out at a Mexican restaurant, which is too loud, (laughs) with my family and friends, uh, getting ready to go see it. And what's funny is I took a picture for the tweet, and by what is effectively complete coincidence, I took a picture when everyone was getting ready for, like, another bite. So everyone has this really somber look on their face. In fact, it looks like they're all going... We're all going to die. And it's funny, because that was completely unintentional. And, of course, we hadn't seen the film yet. We didn't know what was going to happen. I referenced something. I hope you're paying attention about the tone of Thor 3 and why I feel it leads more directly into Infinity War. While Infinity War does have a decent jocular thing going on, for the most part, this is a very dark film. Apocalyptic is the word that's usually used to describe it. And... The, the the reason why I feel that Thor 3 leads more naturally and smoothly into this, aside from the fact that it literally happens minutes later, is the fact that Thor 3 was a comedy, a full-on lighthearted romp. Just like, if you're paying attention, Ant-Man 2 will be, which is right after this. So, lighthearted romp, dark and serious, lighthearted romp. Pacing. So, I really dislike M.D. Mall. Ma, of the three, four uh, children of Thanos, he's the one that just makes me go, really? I mean, ah, okay, whatever. Now, I've heard some people be like, hang on, hang on, hang on. Thor is like super strong now, and he had Loki and Hulk and Valkyrie, and they, they still lost to Thanos' forces. Now, obviously, this is a bit of Worf effect going on. In fact, there's a lot of Worf effect going on in this film in order to try and establish Thanos' people as a threat. But on the one hand, it doesn't actually make a weird amount of sense. Not that I'm saying that Thor couldn't beat them r- regularly, because I actually think he might they might be able to do that. But he- they're not regular. Thanos already has the gauntlet and one stone power specifically. So, yeah, I think that at that point, wielding an infinity stone, yes, he could defeat Thor and the rest. <laughs> I'm gonna go ahead and admit something right now. There's actually a fairly decent amount of plot holes or plot. Uh, I don't know. If, I don't know if plot hole is the right way to call it because they are plot holes, but they are plot holes in service of something. Um, don't think about it. Basically, there's actually a decent amount of those in this film. Like, where the heck was Hulk this entire fight? Like, why, how are they keeping Hulk in, in the shadows, so to speak, until this scene? It leads to a great scene. It leads to Loki saying, we have a Hulk. Bam! And that's an awesome moment. But the, if you sit back and think about it, the narrative elements required to construct that moment are kind of insane and don't really line up or make sense. So, you know, whatever. <laughs> There's a lot of moments like that, like I said. This is the thing, though. Thanos then defeats the Hulk. Straight up, one-on-one, without using the Power Stone. That is impressive, and that does establish the point. I'm going to talk a little bit about this uh, in this film and in Endgame, but Thanos' moveset, his kit, his skill set, is basically the Hulk with a brain. He is just as strong, actually stronger, and as durable, and as big, and he's got, you know, the agility and the power. He's got the physical stats cranked up to max. The difference is Thanos doesn't actually fight like the Hulk does. The Hulk fights like a blind berserker. Thanos doesn't do that. So Thanos defeats the Hulk in a one-on-one fight. Now, this is pretty impressive and, of course, makes perfect sense. And the extremely unlikely chance that you haven't seen any of the MCU leading up to this, this is here to establish the threat level of Thanos and exactly what scale he is. Even if you have seen, this helps to establish him. He takes on the Hulk, who's always been the heavy, the nuclear option of the team, one-on-one and wins without using the Power Stone. Yeah. So then Heimdall decides to send Hulk to Earth. That I've heard people debate this one for a while. Why Hulk? Of all people. Now, that does end up t- leading to things going in a good way. And he does mention, you know, he has the sight and all that. So that's that's the usual excuse I hear. That he saw something and that meant Hulk had to be the one to go. He could have sent Thor. He could have sent all of them. You know, there's, there's, there's methods and operations. He could have sent a Thanos, you know. But instead he decides to send Hulk. And then Heimdall dies. Now, as, throughout this I made note of every permanent death. Because the film, the film does something interesting with its script. It tries to establish relatively early on that, they're, they're, that the stakes are real. It does so by killing off Heimdall and Loki. Now, it's going to do a couple other deaths throughout the film, but the point is, each of these is kind of designed in a way to trick you. I'll talk more about that later. But, the, well, I guess I could talk about it now. So, spoilers for the end of the movie on the really extremely... Why am I even saying that? This is a rumination. There's spoilers! This is to trick you. Also, spoilers for Endgame. Sorry, in the in, I can't talk about this without talking about Endgame. If you haven't seen Endgame, go watch it. Then come back. I'll wait. <laughs> Okay. It's a good film, right? Very flawed good film. So, the way the narrative is constructed is they slowly but surely kill off characters to try and trick you into thinking the stakes are permanent so that when everyone dies at the end, their deaths you are tricked into thinking their deaths are permanent. I know for a fact that several people bought into that trick because I know several of them personally. I'm not going to name names on this one, but I do know people I've had in-person discussions with, and they were convinced that based on the construction of the film, those deaths were sticking. And that got us into a debate about how they could do that, and I actually mentioned this in my own discussion stream. There is actually There are actually ways they could make those deaths stick and still do a Guardians of the Galaxy 3, and still do a Black Panther 2, and still do a Doctor Strange 2. There are options there. They didn't take them, but that was available. So, this is also, and this is kind of meta-knowledge, but this is phase three, where we know that creative control is more in the hands of people who specifically want things to be the best creative work that they can be, as opposed to the best financial work that they can be, which means the possibility of death being permanent is a lot more feasible. Because, um, there's no nice way to say this, If if, if someone who is in charge of a creative work is only interested in money, then death being permanent for any major characters is almost impossible. There's a reason characters in comic books come back so often. It's because they're popular and they can sell. And that's why. That's the reason right there. It's because they can sell comic books or sell toys or sell merchandising. If you actually kill off Superman, oh, we can't do that. That'll hurt our, our sales figures, right? Now, that is a narrow and stupid viewpoint, and I could debate it for some time, but you get the idea. It is only from the creative mindset that you can look at that and say, no, we could kill him off, we can kill her off and kill them off, and then do something with it. Anyway, so Heimdall's the first one to die. This is also something interesting, because Thanos is in his full warlord armor. I want you to remember that for later, about three movies from now. And he removes the warlord armor when he accepts the second Infinity Stone, the Space Stone. So now he has power in space. And that is relevant because his journey throughout this film is going to be basically that of a monk's. I know that sounds strange. But, you know, a journey of enlightenment. He, He arguably goes through the hero's journey. And as I've said many times, Thanos is the main character of Infinity War. So this then leads to Thanos killing the other Odin son. Loki. Now, this is the one most people were convinced was fake. But with the advantage of hindsight, we can now look at this and say, no, this was real. Loki's dead. It's two down. And again, you'll notice how they do the deaths right at the beginning. This is actually a common narrative thing. You have deaths happen at the intro, so the audience is like, oh my god, anyone can die. It's different from having the deaths at the end, which is designed to be more of a <gasps> shock-out-of-nowhere thing. I give examples, but they are by definition spoilers. But you get the idea. There are some films that push deaths early, and some don't. films that push deaths late, and for those two general reasons. So, Hulk ends up on, uh, on Earth. Thanos is coming. Who? This cuts to Stark, who's got his new armor-tech thing on. I like how Potts is actually upset about that. I mean, I, I kind of get why, but it's kind of stupid. I mean, they she's seen the world they live in, right? And Stark is a, a celebrity, so even ignoring, like, large-scale threats and problems that can exist of supervillains or whatever, just a guy with a gun could be a problem there. Of course he's going to have the suit on him, especially when he's around her. I mean, right? <laughs> It just sounds like a duh. This is also, of course, when we find out that he has the Wakandan suit. That'll come up several times. So, uh, he goes and sees Bruce. And one of the interesting things is when he sees Bruce, first thing he does is he hugs him. He's like, oh my God, Bruce. And there's just this moment of emotional bonding. It's very brief. A lot of events in this film don't take their time because the pace is... I mean, this is a really long film. They had so much to cram in. And, and the amount of stuff they cut out is actually insane if you think about it. And I'm not even going to cover that because that, that's basically all of the movie. But um, you can see why events that would normally take like 40, 30 seconds or instead take like 10 or 5. But the beats are still there. There's still that emotional, okay, we're, you know, it's okay, Bruce, I got you. You know, the terror in them, the two years thing. Notice, remember again, what Bruce just went through in Thor 3. And how much they succeeded in Thor 3. And they just got stopped. He also thinks Thor is dead. And he knows Loki is dead. And Heimdall is is dead. (sighs) Actually, I guess he wouldn't know Loki is dead. But he does think Thor is dead. He even says as much. So... So uh, there's also this really wonderful little bit. Again, very brief. I didn't catch it first time I saw this. When they're telling him what's happening, and they reflect that this is Thanos, the one who sent Loki and all that, Tony says under his breath, this is it. Tony's been on an arc ever since Avengers. Ever since. He, he says it himself. Thanos has been on my head for six years. And this is this is something he's been building up to, this is something he's been planning for, this is almost everything he's been doing has been building up to endgame. And well, isn't that appropriate in hindsight? But it makes sense. Now at long last it is coming and he knows, and now it's like, okay, we're gonna have to deal with this. So they're like, We need we need to call in Cap. We need to call in Cap. Okay, okay. And he pulls out the phone, just just out of his jacket. This is bloody subtle, but I love it. He had the phone on him. Of course he did. In hindsight, it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Of course he had the phone on him. I doubt that phone has left his immediate presence for the last four years or however long it's been in lore. I'm pretty sure it's four years. He, Of course he has the phone on him, even when he's just hanging out with Pepper. That says so much right there. It really does. You'll notice that Stark and uh, Cap actually don't interact in this film at all, which is telling since the first time they interact will be at the beginning of Endgame, and, well, we know how that will go. Anyways. I, I also have to say, by the way, as a quick aside, there's some, something many people have pointed out. Um, you know, what What happens when, when that... This was mentioned in Avengers Age of Ultron. What happens when that comes? We'll face it together. Well, what happens if we lose? Well, then we'll do that together too. And yet, the interesting thing is, despite his statements on that regard, Cap and Stark were not together for this one. And it has been argued that that's actually one of the bigger contributions as to why things go as badly as they do. Hulk refuses to come out. Okay, quick aside. You ever heard of the concept death of the author? Um, it, it's a term that refers to the fact that as soon as an author of any given work has created a work and pushed it out there, they don't technically get a say in how it's interpreted. They may say, you know, oh, I, I, I intended this. But if the audience interprets it as something else, well, that's their right. And there's a whole massive debate that goes on, this between author authorial intent and... You know, viewer interpretation, blah, 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 blah. I, I like to think of it as kind of an, a wave thing. You have to always be kind of riding this wave of, okay, how much does author intent matter and how much does the interpretation matter? And I bring this up because they've stated in interviews that Hulk doesn't come out just because he was tired of Banner resolving his problems for him. Or rather, tired of Banner calling on Hulk to solve his problems for him. That's stupid. And I think it's really dumb. I kind of stick with the original interpretation, which everyone else in the world... Sorry, I'm being facetious. A lot of other people, including you guys, as we were discussing this on the stream, a lot of other people look at that and say, no, he's terrified. Truly terrified. Hulk has lost fights before, but never like this. He's never just gone up against another guy in a fist fight and just had, had his ass handed to him. That's never happened. This is something completely unique to Hulk. And Hulk, frankly, doesn't have the emotional framework for something like bravery. As I've said many times, bravery is not being unafraid. Bravery is not letting fear stop you. And in my interpretation, that makes a lot more sense, especially given where the character ends up going in Endgame. My opinion. As always, Curious if yours. In fact, by the way, I'm just going to be kind of rapid-firing a lot. I've got three pages of notes for this film, for God's sakes. It's a big film, so... I know I usually say, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Just, just that's a blanket statement. Anything I say here that you want to comment on, please feel free to share your interpretations and thoughts, because there's a lot to, to dig into here. So, then he has the Wakandan suit, and he fights with, I can't even remember his name, Big Guy. And um, there's this really great bit where Wong chops off the arm of Big Guy and leaves him stranded, and he's like, Wong, you're invited to my wedding. <laughs> I'd like to think that that was followed through on, although, of course, I don't remember Wong's fate, but, you know, whatever. So then... (laughs) uh, Then Stark sends Parker home. Now, I actually forgot to talk about this during the homecoming thing, but it's okay because I can talk about it here. You see, there's... uh, I, I commented all the way back in my Civil War rumination, which is, like, a couple months ago at this point, a month ago, I don't know, six movies ago, so that's like six weeks ago, something like that. I commented there how weird it is that Stark, with his whole, you know, would actually invite a child into a a superhero fight. The thing is, in Homecoming, he made this comment to Peter, which I I actually forgot about, where he mentions that, yeah, no, I went up against Captain America. If Captain America wanted to lay you out, he would have. And Stark says that just so flatly. Again, I point out one of the flaws of the airport scene was that it didn't look like they were holding back, although it should have, because they were, and we know that. Of course, we know that. None of those people were actually trying to hurt each other at all. In fact, and that that is concluded with the roadie thing, roadie falling, and Falcon and Cap, uh, excuse me, Stark, are both like, "Oh God, we got to save him." You know, they weren't trying to hurt each other, so it makes sense that he's willing to risk Spidey in that situation because no one he's fighting is actually going to try and hurt him. You know, who's actually going to try and hurt him? Someone like these guys. Someone like Thanos' crew. Stark has been terrified of these people for six years. He has had trouble sleeping because of this this whole thing. And now his kid, who, let's be honest, is basically his son at this point, is wanting to join in and fight and help with this, and he... No, no, no. This is not some kind of romp in the airport. This is real. This is how bad bad can get. No. And then Spidey sneaks on, anyways. Meanwhile, teenage group two. I've noticed something, Guardians of the Galaxy. You remember how I commented how it was mostly a comedy film? They are most of the comedy in this particular film. Like, there's a little bit of banter and snarking, but most of the actual comedic sections come from them, and. It's funny because it works right up until a certain scene, in which case it actually starts to be aggravating, but it's acknowledged, and from that point onward, there's no more jokes. Interesting to think about, but I'll get there in a minute, or like an hour. I have no idea how long I'm going to be talking here, guys. For all their joking, when they see the devastation of the Statesman, which is the name of the ship the Asgardians were on, they are oh, they're, 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 blown away by it. They also then, you know, they rescue Thor, bring him on board. And then they talk about how Chris Pratt is fat. Now, that's funny for two reasons. Reason number one, because he actually did fatten up for a role, if you remember. Uh, Reason number two, because have you seen Chris Pratt without a shirt? I wish I was that skinny. (laughs) That would be really nice. I don't even eat that much. And I exercise every day, and I am nowhere near that. Yeah, yeah, sure. He's fat, uh huh. And then, of course, this leads to Quill, who is, of course, threatened by Thor. And it's one of those most amusing types of being threatened because it's when you're threatened. This is this is usually this is a full-on comedy section. Let's just be honest about it. This is a full-on comedy sketch. And there's person A who is threatened by person B, who is not threatening person A. In short, it's all on person A. They're the ones who perceives the threat, whereas person B is not trying or attempting to be threatening at all. They're just being themselves. <sighs> you know, the the deepened voyeur. i uh, um, No, you will not go. And, and yes, you know, I've I've been through some stuff too, and that's horrible. I do like how Thor just tries to reach out bravely to Gamora, because you know they've they've been through some stuff. And it becomes this whole contest thing, and he lost his eye, and blah, 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 blah. One of the things I do like is that Rocket has actually heard of... Uh, Nidavellir, I think, is how that's supposed to be pronounced. It's it's hard for me. I've always sucked at Norse names. Uh, and he's actually heard of it. Of course, Rocket, of all people, would have heard of the legendary Forge of Doom, the most insane, powerful forge in the entire galaxy. Of course, Rocket would have heard of that. Meanwhile... Wanda and Vision are on the run, but taking a moment between themselves in order to, you know, spend some time together, which makes sense. Gotta admit, if if that's what on the run looks like, I have just been doing things wrong. Like, did you see the hotel they're in? Good God. But no, they are found. And the two biggest DPS in the entire team just get wrecked effortlessly. Now, in the interest of fairness, this is actually a good insight into the value of a good sneak attack and a good alpha strike. They start off right off the bat, take out uh, the, the heavy, take out Vision, and then from then on they are fighting at diminished capacity because Vision is injured and Wanda's is distraught. Okay, I can kind of get by that. What irritates me a little bit is that what ends up actually turning the tides there is them going after Widow, who's a human being with no powers whatsoever, Cap, who's just barely above standard human, and Falcon, who's got a a wingsuit. I like these guys a lot, and, and and all of them, all three of those people have a lot to offer a team. But in a straight one-on-one fight, <laughs> it's like a level fifty being two level fifties being saved by a couple level tens showing up and be like, "We got this, guys." Anyways, moving on, moving on. <clears throat> so. We're two, Cap. Well, let's go home, because the old rules don't apply. This is Captain America's mindset in a nutshell. He, is, he and his crew have been on the run for a while, and you can kind of tell there's been a little bit of coordination going on. With It's, it's implied that there's been coordination going on with them and the, the others to make sure that they stay under the hood, or stay under the radar, excuse me. But, um, yeah, no, they're just kind of just staying out of this. We're just going to kind of do this. Oh, Earth's under attack. Okay, let's go home. Let's just walk into the front door, which is exactly what they do. I'll get back to that in a moment. Meanwhile, we see some of Gamora's backstory... I'm bleeding. My toe is bleeding. (laughs) Uh, We see some of Gamora's backstory, which actually is really Thanos' backstory. He talks about his whole concept, perfectly balanced. We also get the shtick of what he's into. What I mean by that is his thing in the comics is completely different than his thing here. Let me go ahead and say I think it was a good change. The whole love affair with death thing, eh, eh, that never really worked for me. It made him uniquely pathetic and kind of, like, I don't know if I want to say a joke so much as just... I'm going to stick with pathetic. And there's some value in a, in a well-designed, pathetic villain. But I think the, for this seriousness, and for the villain of the MCU to date, and for the main component of the entire Infinity War saga, uh, or the Infinity Stone saga, excuse me, I, I feel like him just being into balancing all life in the universe makes a lot more sense. Especially because it ties into the title that really helps to define him. The Mad Titan. <clears throat> What I love about it is that he's so uncaring. There's no remorse there. There's no regret. Now, that's important, and I want you to remember that, okay? He does what he's doing with total certainty that what he's doing is right. There's no hesitation. Would you hesitate to pick up a Kleenex to wipe off your bloody toe? No, of course you wouldn't. That's just what you do. <laughs> Why would you even consider hesitating about that? Is, this, is it the right thing to do? No, don't be stupid. Of course it's the right thing to do. Remember that. This then leads to Gamora and Quill talking, and we can see that Quill does know how to drop the jokes because he does so around her briefly. It's like, okay, yeah, I, I can tell you're being serious, and she actually forces him to swear on his mother, and that's when he just loses all semblance of anything. It's just like, okay, okay, I promise. Then there's a joke. The film itself follows the same pattern I just mentioned within the within the films. Joke, serious, joke, serious. And that pattern will continue, well, up until a point I already mentioned. Meanwhile, meanwhile, they end up on uh, Nowhere, and Drax becomes emotionally compromised and does something stupid. Huh. Of course, this is all just a trap, because the only reason Thanos is doing any of this is because he's curious if she cares. That's all, he, that's all he's interested in. He just wants to know if she still cares about him. And so she kills Thanos, which of course does nothing because he's not there at all. And he's like, okay. This is also when we see, by the way, the nature of the reality cloak that he uses the uh, the, ether, the the reality stone for. This is actually a term from the creators, not me. Although, I like to think of it as a temporary buff or debuff. In short, this is best explained by if you see what he does to both Mantis and Drax. They're like, and that's the end of that. But when he leaves, the enchantment is removed and they go back to normal. In short, the Reality Stone can alter reality, but only as it is maintained. He has to keep that spell going. He has to keep some kind of part of his power and effort in focusing on it. if he doesn't, then it dissipates. Which makes a lot of sense to me it also brings the power level down a rather necessary amount because if he could just alter reality and have it stick well that's the end of the game right there anywho he's up to three stones now that's uh that's getting fun and of course thanos is very curious if you know quill will be the kind of person who will go ahead and sacrifice the the theme of sacrifice starts to creep its way into the narrative at at about this point and quill finally thanos is like go ahead killer. And, of course, he pulls the trigger and nothing happens. (laughs) I like him. Note all of this sticks. Nowhere really is destroyed. The Collector really is dead. I only point that out because a lot of damage, a lot of death happens in this film that actually sticks, that actually matters. I'm just pointing that out. Then, Cap goes back home, and uh, Rhodey is in conversation with Thunderbolt Ross, also known as Stupid Ross. And Captain America tells him flat out, look, Earth just lost its best defender, referring to Stark, referring to Tony. So we need to do what we can to make up the slack. Ross is like, all right, arrest these men. I'm sorry, what? (laughs) (laughs) What? You really think... Oh, my God, I cannot put into words how stupid that is. And that's why I hate Thunderbolt Ross so, so much. He is just everything wrong with the obstinate bureaucrat character archetype. Oh, I just want to smack him and then possibly kill him. (sighs) So, the previous scene was when Quill was willing to sacrifice Gamora for the greater good, right? This then leads to Cap refusing to sacrifice vision for the greater good. They have a bit of an argument back and forth. But the argument actually gets derailed because the third option is brought up. Now, I've talked about the concept of the third option before, but just to make sure I'm more clear here. The very idea of the third option is w- there's one bad option there's another bad option. But here's a good option. It's not always third. Sometimes it's fifth. Sometimes it's 18th. But the point is, the third option comment concept is the one good option that, that bypasses the dilemma. So it's like, okay, we'll remove the stone. We'll leave vision. We'll destroy it. Nobody gets sacrificed. We're not sacrificing anything. We're going to do what's right, not what's correct. So... Uh, we have a brief... There's a whole lot of brief scenes. Them reaching out to Bucky, giving him a Wakandan arm, which, it's got to be something. Holy crap. And we find out that what's left of the Border Tribe, nice little touch there, is going to help start, you know, dealing with the situation. We also find out that Ebony Ma is afraid of Thanos. I don't really blame him. And then he dies. Thank God. I was so worried he was going to be a big deal. Nope, he's gone. Stark is so furious with Peter. Of course he is. You'll notice that, and, and absolute praise to Robert Downey Jr., there are several scenes in several, there are several bits in the upcoming scenes with Tony Stark where he is so angry, he actually can't talk. He is actually incapable of speech because of how furious he is. Because this is all everything he's ever been terrified of for six years, and everything I don't know if you understand what that feels like. I do, unfortunately. I have actually experienced this once in my life. It's when you have a fear and it's in the back of your mind. It's not a big fear. It's not an everyday thing, except it kind of is. You just get used to it being in the back there and you're afraid of it. And it's always in your thoughts all the time. No matter what you're doing, somewhere in the back you're thinking, you know, oh my God, the carrots could be trying to eat me or, you know, whatever. I'm, I'm joking, obviously, but do you know that feeling? Then it happens. That fear that's been part of your life for years start, just, just smashes you in the face. There are no words. There are no words in human language that explain what that moment is like. And that's what Tony Stark is going through right now. And he is silent for the most part. And he, it's all just, like, he just can't. He cannot process this because it is too horrifying to contemplate. And so he just kind of tries to distance himself from things. But then, oh, Peter's here too. Oh, oh, okay, that's even worse than what I already thought. And at every step, he just finds out things are actually worse than he was already afraid of. Can you imagine that? Because I don't have to. And I hope most of you have never experienced that. So... <sighs> Thanos has been on my head for six years. I say we take the fight to him. Do you concur, Doctor? Okay, yeah, I concur. All right. You ever wonder how Thanos funded and built his army and fleet? It's it's just something in the background that's always... Because, again, his power set is he's big and he's strong and he's durable, and that's it. Like, that's his kit. Where the heck did he... Anyways, moving on. So then Thanos and Gamora have an argument about his big plan about wiping out, you know, this plan. And, uh... Thanos, again, and I want to draw your attention to this, no hesitation, no doubt, no remorse, no regret. Of course, I am the only one with the will to act on it. I am the only one who can actually do this. We see that he means this, and we also see that his cruelty is still there. Now, I want you to remember that, too, because he tortures, uh, well, he basically tortures his daughter, and I don't mean Nebula. He tortures Gamora by torturing Nebula to get her to, to tell him where the stone is. And, of course, he uses both space and power. He's, this is, I believe, the first time he uses two stones in conjunction with each other. You can kind of see there's this weird unspoken path of experience as he's getting better and better at using the stones throughout the film. We never see him really use... We see him use soul once, and we never see him use mind. But you can see how he gets better and better, especially with the base too, power and space. Those are his most common ones by far. Anyways, um... So he tortures her, and Gamora refuses to sacrifice Nebula for the greater good or whatever. So she, she cap- capitulates, like, okay, fine, I'll tell you, I'll tell you. Meanwhile, Rocket reaches out to Thor, who is just absolutely overwhelmed with failure and regret. And he says flat out, what more could I possibly lose? Don't don't say that, Thor. Don't ever say that. Um, the eyeball comes in, the one I actually referenced earlier. And he goes to the greatest forge in the galaxy, which is dead. Ooh, that's that's not fun. So we find out, that this actually makes a lot of sense, the greatest forge in the entire galaxy forged the Infinity Gauntlet, and that actually makes a lot of sense in hindsight. And we find out that he's um, uh, he was refu- he refused to sacrifice. That's, that's, I'm starting to notice a trend here. He refused, Eitri refused to sacrifice his people and his, so he did that, and then his people were killed anyways. That that worked out well. But it's okay. It's okay. Because uh, we're going to make this new weapon. A weapon designed for a king called Stormbreaker. Which actually is an extremely cool name for a, for a weapon of any kind. Meanwhile, two of the teams link up as the Guardians of the Galaxy team, which has been put... Oh, yeah, Nebula escapes, by the way. And she tells them to go to Titan. So they go to Titan, and then they encounter the... I guess the Space Avengers. (laughs) Doctor Strange, Iron Man, and Spider-Man. That's a fun one. This then leads to a very critical scene. And it's a scene I've already referenced several times. So Stark, I remind you, is just, just barely holding on to the tiniest thread of sanity right now. He is just and he's like okay okay we're, we're gonna we're gonna have a plan uh, what's important is the gauntlet Th- thanos himself doesn't really matter we just need to get that thing off him and drax yawns and he's like what are you doing and there's this scene where stark you could just tell he's just like this is not the time for joking he doesn't say that because he can barely speak i already referenced this he himself knows what it's like to snark in a deadly situation. But there's deadly, and then there's how bad bad can get. And this is as worse as worse can get. He is not joking at all. He doesn't poke around. He's like, okay, no, we need to do this. This is important, and did, what are you doing? Please, p- Mr. Lord, please, could you get your people over Yes, yeah, Star Lord, whatever. Please get your people over here. You could tell he is just completely done with this. And can you blame him? With the threats and the stakes that they're facing... For them to just be so casual about it, especially given how much buildup this has been having. Now, (laughs) this is effectively the last joke in the film. There's a few other little light moments, but for the most part, from now on else, from now on to the end of the film, it is serious. And I find that interesting to be that, 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 that's the point. They decide to call that off and be like, all right, no more light humor. We're in serious mode now. So Red Skull, who is cursed to watch over the Soul Stone, question. I know I said this is a blanket statement, but I'm very specifically curious about this one. Do you think it is coincidence that he ended up here and as the the guardian of the Soul Stone? Do you think it is math, as in because of the patterns of the universe, this was something that he fit into the formula perfectly in? Or do you think it was Will that something decided that this was going to be his fate? The door is left open enough that you can assume any one of those three that you prefer. So as always, kind of curious what you think on that. Now, this then leads to Thanos' reaction when he finds out that you have to, to sacrifice something you love. His face, Brolin does a really good job with his facial acting here, and of course they translate that onto Thanos' face. And Gabor is just like, ha <laughs> ha you're screwed. You're screwed. All of this. You, you kill and you, you torture and you call it a mercy, but no, you're, you're done. The universe has denied you. ha <laughs> ha. And there's just so much relief on her face. Oh, thank God it's over. You are screwed. And then he turns around and there are tears pouring down his face. She's like, oh, really? Tears? Wait, what? What, for me? No, that can't... And for the first time, for the very first time, Thanos hesitates. This whole film, he has been absolutely certain. 100%. This is what must be, and this is what I will do. Why would I hesitate about pulling out a tissue to wipe off my toe, right? I know that's a weird analogy, but I'm going to keep using it. Because it's so banal. It's so normal and mundane. That's the point. To him, this is just another step. But now, he wait. Now he has to murder, call it what it is, his daughter, to do that. And he hesitates. Just, wait. No, I... But... I have to do this. And you can tell he's just kind of trying to talk himself into it. I have to do this. I've already sacrificed so much. We've come so... I have to. I have to do this. I... And then he actually apologizes to her. And there's just this look of anguish on his face as he does it. Quick side note. The fact that you have to sacrifice someone or, that you love in order to gain the Soulstone. That's actually interesting in its own right, isn't it? Because it means certain people never could. It would be physically impossible for them to. Food for thought. So then Gamora dies. Another permanent death. Meanwhile, Wakanda forms the front line of the defense of Earth against the final invasion. Interesting, isn't it? It's, it's actually wonderfully a nice parallel there because um, it means that the time at which Wakanda has decided to open their borders and become part of the planet leads immediately into them having to be the one force that can actually defend it against such an overwhelming uh, offense. It's, it's just nice little symmetry there. It works out pretty well. So they drop the drop pods. The shield thing happens, all sorts of fuss. You notice Thor is, is, is okay with sacrificing. Himself, if need be. So he opens up the thing, and the star goes in, and Groot 2, you know, becomes the arm for the handle, and we get Stormbreaker, and it's all awesome. Um, meanwhile, I just want to make a really quick aside. You remember how I complained about how the, the Civil War was like 30 people fighting in Black Panther? Maybe 50 at the high end. This is a little closer to what I was picturing. Now, I know, bigger budget, and blah, blah, blah. But the the force that fights at the end there is uh, rather large. And, of course, War Machine's very good at this, after all. He's a destroyer. Destroyers are very good at fighting large groups of people. By the way, of course, it wouldn't be a final act of a Marvel film if there wasn't some big battle against some big nameless enemy thing. So Thor shows up with Stormbreaker, who is now ludicrously powerful. No, seriously. Thor was already very high tier, especially after Thor Three, and now he has a weapon which is, jeez which is even stronger and better, and also gives him the uh, access to the Bifrost anywhere, so he can teleport and destroy the hell out of things. <sighs> So then we have the first big Thanos fight. It's nice to see that we see actual teamwork between the group there. And, of course, we also see that they're trying very hard to make sure that he doesn't close the gauntlet. Now, that's a nice touch, because they've been doing that the whole film. He does a little, like, clench, and that's what activates it. Obviously, it connects to his mind, but the point is, ksh, he has to do this. Once they identify this, they have a weak point, And they have a weak point that they can exploit to try and keep that thing open. Now... This then leads to them, the whole team restraining him, Mantis calming him, which makes sense. She can do it to Ego, who, let's be honest, is more personally powerful than Thanos. So she starts to restrain him, and they all pull him apart, and it's like, okay, we've got this. And they've won! All they have to do is get that gauntlet off, and they've won. I'm going to go ahead and mention this theory here. Because what happens next is Quill screws everything up. Quill messes everything up. First, he celebrates too early. Critical mistake. Second, Tony, of all people, understands the headspace that Quill is in when he finds out Gamora's dead. Because Tony's been in that headspace. You remember the end of Civil War? Where he went uh, a little too hard on uh, on Cap. Arguably was trying to kill Cap, whereas Cap was not trying to kill him back. Yeah, he, he went too far there. So he knows exactly the kind of mentality Quill's in right now, and you can kind of see why he's struggling so much to convince him not to do this, and it leads to everything falling apart. I've talked many times about what it's like to be in the moment. We don't think in the moment. We do, and we do stupid, dumb things. But that doesn't change... I'm not excusing what Quill does. I'm just stating that it makes perfect sense what he does. So Quill screws everything up forever. Or does he... Here's the thing. I heard a theory as I was researching this film. And it's a theory I find fascinating. Up until uh, Vormir, Thanos has not given a damn about anything he's done. He's been utterly dispassionate about it. And, kind of spoilers, as we find out in Endgame, that carries forward. Because that Thanos is from the past. That Thanos has no hesitation about going out and just wiping out all life in the entire universe. Because that'll be better. Again, no hesitation, no remorse. What I'm doing is right. Now he's starting to hesitate. Now he's starting to regret. Now he does, he, the, the guilt and the emotion is starting to overwhelm him. Now that's important. Because what happens as a consequence of Quill's stupidity is he is reminded very firmly, and his emotions are very rawly open to what he just did. And again, ever since that scene, he's been acting differently. You'll notice that he doesn't do anything cruel after that scene. No torture, no malice, no cruelty, none. He even comforts, uh, uh, oh God, Wanda. He even comforts Wanda at the end, even though she's someone he's actively trying to kill. There's All of that's gone. He has effectively completed his journey into the Thanos that is now, the more complex, more nuanced villain who is still going to keep doing what he does, But he's going to hate himself for doing it. He has, in short, finished the journey from being a Justice Lord into being a Cisco. And and I know I don't use that Lorium all that often. It's on my website. You can see if you look in the right thing. Lorium's Justice Lord versus Cisco. I'm not going to describe it here. So then another fight happens and he casts Meteor Swarm. And for probably the first time ever we see what a Meteor Swarm could really look like. in, In like a real life setting. Holy crap. Cut to the fighting. Rocket and Bucky are awesome. Falcon and Rody is awesome. Okoye and Widow, awesome. Wanda shows up and just beats ass because she's one of the big DPS. Vision manages to kill Corvus, awesome. Strange and Thanos, a mage fight, awesome. Uses the Soul Stone to ID him and the Power Stone to destroy the... It's just very cool stuff. It's, I don't have much to add to all of it. This then leads to Stark going all out just completely going full tilt onto Thanos for the first time, and arguably the last. And as he does it, and he just goes all in, he actually injures Thanos. And Thanos has a line, all that for a drop of blood. But pay attention, this is the first time Thanos has been injured at all, physically. It's the first time anyone has hurt the Mad Titan physically. That is actually legitimately impressive, and it says a lot about it. And funnily enough, he probably couldn't... There's no problem. He couldn't have managed that without the Wakandan tech. So, good job, Shuri. <laughs> so, Thanos... Mm. Thanos is a tool user. I've already mentioned that. He thinks his way through fights. He, he, actually, in many ways, he fights the same way Tony Stark does. There's a lot of comparisons between Tony Stark and Thanos. And not just because of the fact that their names start with T... But what I find most interesting is Strange offers up the time stone. Now, we all know this is a trick. We do. Everything he says and everything he indicates indicates this is part of the plan. Duh, right? <laughs> he said out flat out, I will sacrifice you and the kid if it means staving the stone. He said, you know, I've seen all these futures and only one which works. Then he offers the stone, and later on he says it was the only way. Yeah, okay, yeah, I, I, I get gotcha. We're in the end game now. Getting there. <clears throat> now, what's most interesting is because he does that, Thanos does spare Stark. Why wouldn't he? He's past cruelty at this point, remember? So he leaves. And juggernauts through the crew. Uh, I I actually wrote down some of it. He uses the Space Stone on Banner, he uses the Power Stone on Captain America, Space Stone again on Warmeck, Power on Bucky and Okoye, and just, he he mashes through Cap. He looks strange at Cap, because I think he's recognizing the will there. And you notice he just bats him away rather than doing any of the other things. Again, the respect and the recognizing of what he's doing is starting to get to him. And of course, Vision, it's alright, you can never hurt me. I just feel you. And for the first time, they've, Finally, sacrifice. They finally sacrifice in order to accomplish their goals, and Vision dies in order to save the universe. And Thanos comforts Wanda. This is the Thanos that has become. All of that, he's still mad, but I would argue that a lot of the evil has left him at this point. That he is no longer a malicious and vicious and cruel entity that instead he is just trudging through the final steps of what he believes he has to do. Now that actually makes him more dangerous, and more terrifying, and more interesting. So he comforts Wanda, reverses time, and Vision dies permanently. So Thor finally shows up, finally, took him long enough. And he decides that he wanted revenge. He wanted revenge. He wanted Thanos to know he killed him. So he gets him in the chest, which is a very serious wound, of course. But uh, not fatal. If he had been efficient, he could have just killed Thanos right then and there, but he didn't. So instead what happens is... uh, Well, you get it. Snap. I think it's interesting how when he sees Gamora, he sees her probably as he always saw her, the little girl that he took pity on, that he loved. And notice his face. What did it cost you? Everything. There's no celebration here. There's no joy. He is not happy. He is burdened with what he has done. Again, like a Sisko would. And in the end, he vanishes away and... What happens is one of the most amazing moments, series of moments I've ever seen in cinematic history, and I am not exaggerating when I say that. The The crafting of these scenes is perfect. The, the, the sound gets muted, like it's being muffled through something. The music's gone. Everything is so quiet. They die so quiet. There's a little sound effect that plays, just a little... And that's it. Just like a whisper of a breath being exhaled and they're gone and we see them fade one after another after another we see the random npcs the war people fade we see the individuals fade t'challa he's gone bucky he's gone Groot too we actually know what he said he says i am Groot what he's actually saying there is dad or father or however you want to think of that and he's gone These are the people who know. Some of them have at least an idea, a concept of what's going on. I want you to imagine everyone else in in the world. Now I want you to imagine everyone else in the universe who just all of a sudden... (sighs) Picture that. Picture the chaos. Picture the insanity. Picture the panic. We actually get to see some of this in Endgame, at the very beginning of Endgame. It's it's messed up. And then Stark... Stark has to watch his son die right in front of him. And again, no words. He, He can't say anything. He lost the kid. And Captain America did the right thing. And lost. He refused to sacrifice. He refused to do the correct thing. And that has been Captain America from the very beginning. He does the right thing, not the correct thing. And for once... It costs him, and it costs him so severely and so hard, he just blue screens. He just completely blue screens. He can't even begin to process the enormity of his failure. There's a theory. I, I said I'd bring this up. It's, it's actually a, a bit of military tactics. It's like this. If you know you're going to lose, if you know a situation's going to go a certain way that is a loss, um, better to try and control that loss, to make that loss happen on your terms so you can better recover from it and better move forward going forward, you know, either you or someone else or whatever. you know, If you can arrange this loss in a way that later on it can help to, to further a victory, then that's a thing you can do. I forget the proper term for it, forgive me. I've heard a theory that that's exactly what Strange is doing here, that the specific path he's going in is this is going to happen, the decimation's going to happen no matter what. Yes, I know, that doesn't make sense because it's 90%. Let's not get smart here. (laughs) That's what they called it, not me. The half a nation doesn't really have the same ring to it either. I would call it the devastation, by the way. So, the decimation's going to happen. And there's so many ways it can happen because Thanos is so committed at this point and has so much knowledge and so much at at his disposal that he's going to make it happen. So, why don't we ensure that it happens on our terms, in our way? So he delays, making sure the snap happens later to ensure that Ant-Man 2 happens. And he makes sure that Thanos feels everything I've been talking about, the the character arc, the remorse, the regret. Here's the thing. The theory, in a nutshell, boils down to this. If the snap is going to happen anyways, we need to make it undoable. The theory and let's let's bear it down to an even more basic point, is that the snap wasn't necessarily undoable. That only the severe regret and guilt of Thanos when he did it is specifically what allows it to be undoable in the future. That, in short, if he had still been the sure-I-am-absolutely-right-Thanos from the past that we encounter in Endgame, if that Thanos had done it, that there would be no undoing it. It would just stick. But now... The possibility exists. It's an interesting theory. And I will admit, it lines up very nicely with everything else that happens. But then the film ends. And I want to share a story real quick here before I cut this off. When I saw this in the theaters, we were crying. (laughs) My sister was sobbing right next to me. I'm just sitting here, tears. The audience was so quiet. It's one of the most eerie things I've ever seen. I know that you guys in Europe, you're like, well, a quiet audience is a good thing. Yeah, that's, over here in the States, you know, a reactive audience is a good thing. <laughs> but when I say the audience was quiet, I don't mean they were sitting there politely. I mean everyone was holding their breath. It was eerie. It, it was unnatural how quiet everyone was being there. How, how, how silent everyone was as they were just all staring at the, the, the screen in total shock. And you remember why I mentioned all those tricks they pulled with the deaths and the devastation earlier on to try and trick you into thinking that this one's actually going to stick. And at the end, well, at the end, we behold a new sunrise on a grateful universe.